So if you haven't been here, we are in the midst of a series looking at the life of David, which basically means that we've been in 1 Samuel. Eventually, we're going to make it into 2 Samuel. And this week, we're in chapter 20. So if you have a Bible, you want to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. That'll help you follow along with what we're doing. And a couple of things, if, you're, if you haven't been here, what we're trying to do, the reason we're doing this is not just to understand David's life, although David is the most discussed, most mentioned, mo- we have the most information about him of anybody in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus. So he's second place behind Jesus, which is pretty good. Um, but we're also trying to not just understand his life, but we're trying to understand how do we read his biblical narrative. What is the author, if the author says this happened, what are we supposed to take from that? What's going on? Why were these stories selected as opposed to others? What's, what is, where does this little story about David fit into the greater story about Jesus? And it is my contention that all of Scripture, including David's life, the whole thing, really does point to Christ. The whole thing is meant to be a revelation of him. And so as we're reading it, we're not just trying to ask the question, like, what's this have to say about David? But what, why is it here? What is it, where does it fit into, this, into the whole bigger picture narrative that we've got? Okay. And the passage we're looking at today is all of chapter 20, which is super long, and there's a ton of stuff in here, so we're going to try to like blitz through it. We'll slow down kind of wherever you want to, wherever the things that are interesting to you. But I will say, this is a, this is, when I was looking at, going over this, there's just a ton of content. So here's what's happening, all right? We'll pick it up in chapter 20, verse 1. We'll just kind of take it a, a paragraph at a time. I'll just read a chunk and we'll talk about it. Cool? All right, 1 Samuel 20, verse 1. It says, David fled from this place to that place and went to Jonathan and said, What have I done? What is my crime? How have I wronged your father that he's trying to take my life? Jonathan's father is the king, by the way. If you haven't been here, it's King Saul. Jonathan's his kid. But Jonathan and David are best friends. Never, Jonathan replied, you are not going to die. Look, my father doesn't do anything great or small without confiding in me. Why would he hide this from me? It is not so. But David took an oath and said, your father knows very well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said to himself, Jonathan must not know this or he will be grieved. Yet as surely as the Lord lives and as you live, there is only a step between me and death. All right, first thing. How does Jonathan's apparent unawareness that his father is trying to kill David's, how does that strike you? Strange. Why strange? Who, who, I can't tell. Oh, Robin. Okay, I couldn't find you. There you go. Go loud, Robin. David would be in the courts with Saul and he would try to shoot him with an arrow across the room. Yeah. That means he doesn't. So there's been multiple times that Saul has thrown a spear at David, tried to kill him. And Jonathan's like, no, 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 no. This would never happen. Dude, what happened? Surgery. Awesome. Okay, good. Um, this, so it seems like Jonathan has every reason to know that his father... Does, is that true to you? Like, does that make sense? Like, Jonathan has every reason to know that his father is trying to kill him. A couple things. Jennifer? Didn't Saul give Jonathan a vote? Yes, okay, very good. So John, so, and Saul is going to multiple times over these chapters promise he'll never, never hurt David and his resolve lasts, you know, like a day or something. So yes, Jonathan has that. And then John? We're also making assumptions about where Jonathan has been at any one particular time. He may not have, uh, may not have been 100% of the time Okay, very good. So every time we, see, we get to watch the spear, th- you know, getting thrust at David, but maybe Jonathan's not there for those things and hasn't directly seen it. I think that's, I think that's plausible. Although it strikes me as pretty unlikely that David's not going to tell his best friend that his best friend's father tried to kill him a couple times, right? 
Dan? There's some real political naivete in Jonathan's position. There is. There is. And, and, and I think that's exactly right. So Dan said there's some political naivete on, in Jonathan's view of this, right? I, I would suggest to you that Jonathan has every reason to know that his father is trying to kill him. But I don't think Jonathan's being dishonest. I just think emotions are funny things, right? And it's, it's hard to look directly at the fact that your father is trying to murder a righteous man. And so he's like, nah, 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 that can't be the case. You know, by, by, why, by whatever means, Jonathan's, Jonathan can't see it. And so David has to help him, help move him. Dude, listen to me. Pay attention. You got to see what's happening here. Chris? Going with what you're saying, uh, but didn't Jonathan just uh, find out that Saul's trying to kill David in the last chapter? Yeah, this is what I'm saying. It's like, you need to get out of here. So it's like potentially what he's saying, less my dad doesn't care at all about killing you, but saying, I don't think he's going to kill you soon because he hasn't told me. Well, okay, yeah, so. So may, it's possible that Jonathan is like saying, you know, you're safe today, you're safe this week, he'll, he will let me know. But I don't, I don't necessarily get the sense that he's like, it's not time yet, but rather um, that uh, he says, you're not going to die. My father doesn't do anything. I think that Jonathan is living in a, in a little bit of an artificial realm because it's, it's hard to face the truth of that. And so David's got to correct him, you know. <laughs> exactly, exactly right. He is living, I think he's living in a place of denial. Yeah, Judy. <coughs> it's hard to admit. It is hard to admit that your father is crazy. <laughs> Do you need to admit anything? Is there? Is that okay? Yeah. No, I mean, I mean that seriously. Yeah. In dysfunctional family, there is always covering. You know, whether they believe it or not, it's like that could possibly. Yeah, I think that's all this. So there's this. There's a, I, th- I think a pretty obvious reality going on that Jonathan is surprisingly able to insulate himself from. It's just a strange thing, okay? And so David's like, listen, you're crazy. Uh, listen up. And then in verse 4, Jonathan says to David, listen, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Like, he, he surrenders to David's, like, imploring, like, listen to me. I'm in danger. And David comes up with a plan, okay? I think the plan is pretty pretty clever okay so watch the plan here's what David's going to do about this he's been he's been avoiding the spears for a while but now he needs he's like I can't live like this here's what we're going to do let's prove the case tomorrow's a new moon festival this is David speaking verse 5 I'm supposed to go down with the king let me go hide in the field until the evening of the day after tomorrow and if your father misses me tell him David earnestly asked permission to hurry to Bethlehem his hometown because an annual sacrifice is being made there for his whole clan and if he says very well then your servant is safe but if he loses his temper, you can be sure that he is determined to harm me. And as for you, Jonathan, you show kindness to your servant, David, for you brought him into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I'm guilty, then kill me yourself. Why hand me over to your father? And Jonathan says, never. Listen, if I had the least clue, the least inkling that my father was determined to harm you, wouldn't I tell you? And David says, well, who will tell me if your father answers harshly? Okay, so what's clever, but just jump into this with me. What is, what's, what's David's plan, first of all? He's going to go hide somewhere, right, and just disappear. He ought to be at dinner with the king. He should be there, but he's going to go hide. Okay, why is this a clever way to pull Saul out of his, um, you know, to, to reveal Saul's true heart? What, is the, what are the advantages of the way David is doing this? This might be a little bit obscure, but... Okay, Chris first, and then we'll jump over here. Chris? 
as I say, just he's got uh, Saul's got the affirmation that he, if he does have a plan to kill David, he's gonna do it. Yes. Good way, so he's confident, he's invested into this strategy, and therefore, if someone tries to skew away from that, you can go, wait, no, I already have my plan set. Mm -hmm. Don't tell him not to do what I'm hard to know. That's right. And so, if Saul, if Saul has a plan, this is gonna, this is gonna kind of flush it out. And was there an additional thought over here? Uh, just that uh, that was the easiest way for David not to actually be in the range. That's right. He's safe. I mean, that's exactly right. So if, if you're going to find out that Saul is going to kill you, you'd like to find that out when you're out of range, right? And that's exactly what he does. He goes off and he hides, and he knows that this is going to tick off Saul. He's, he's sure he knows how this is going to play out. But when, it, when, when his rage is provoked, he'll already be safely away, right? If you, were to go, if you were to go up to him and confront him, well, now we've got to have like a hand-to-hand -hand combat. And David is trying to just get, make, get out of the situation. Jennifer? It also lets Jonathan have to drop any facade of not knowing or not. That's right. It spares Jonathan from some danger. It puts David in a safe place, but it's still going to flesh Saul out, right? Yeah, Suzanne? And it also, it's showing Jonathan that Saul has premeditation. It's not just he gets... Excellent. Shoots at him or throws a spear at him, but like he has a point. That's right. And this is really the goal. The goal is not just to avoid getting killed. The goal is for Jonathan to wake up, right? And so this accomplishes all of those things with like minimal risk. It's like, I like that. That's a pretty good cost-benefit analysis that David's pulling. Which, by the way, I don't know if you... One of the things that the Bible constantly says about David is that he is extremely wise. Okay, when we watch, we watch David, the narrative about David over and over and over again, David is peculiar in his ability to discern a situation, to know the right thing to do. And this is just one of like a long string of times where David kind of proves that point. Okay, DFP. We also, in this story, we begin to see a crack in David's righteousness to this point. We do. Oh, such a good point. Lying to the king. First time. You know, to, to preserve his life. Right. This is good. And by the way, and I'm glad that you said that now. We'll let that, we'll let that, there is another lie coming, not in this chapter, with much, much graver consequences. And I, I sure appreciate you saying that because so far David's been all good. And we're going to begin to see, oh, uh, wait a second, not quite so good. So I, I so appreciate you saying that. Okay, Kelly. It does kind of monkey with your sense of is it ever right to lie because... David prompts Jonathan to tell a lie, which he does. Jonathan does lie, and Michael lies for him both mm -hmm. to protect David's life. Both of them in the case of protecting his life. Yes. And that will be, we'll probably save that until we get to the, oh, hold the priests of, what are they called? Priests of Nob. Um, we'll talk about lying when we get there. Um, and kind of how do we make sense of the apparent moral use of the immoral deception. So we'll... We'll kind of we'll check we'll take that apart in a couple weeks probably, okay. So they 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 they're going to live out this story. Oh, and by the way, what's the second option? If Jonathan doesn't like this plan, David gives him an alternative plan. Do you remember what it is? Just kill me for crying out loud. Let's just get it over with, right? David's at a he's at an end point of this. This is hard, right? And he knows like if you don't wake up and recognize my danger and assist me in this, I'm as good as dead. Okay. So, that's the second option. We don't go with that option. But now this is where something's going to happen. The story's going to change. And we're studying the life of David, and we're now about to shift track. And we're going to look at the life of Jonathan. Okay? For the next bit of this chapter, David's really going to recede away. He's going to be back off stage, and Jonathan steps up to the foreground. So, I wanted to, I wanted to use today to talk about Jonathan. What do you know about Jonathan? 
What's in your data pool here about this guy? Okay, he's the son of Saul. Very good. The oldest. Oldest, as I said, yes. What else do you know? What's he like? He loves David. He loves David. This is his best friend. Not much is bad said about What's that? Not much is bad. Yes, he's a good guy. We like, we like Jonathan a great deal, right? This guy, he is, he is godly, he is wise, he is kind, he is courageous. Jonathan is a top shelf dude. Kelly? I was just going to say he's crazy, courageous, Yes. Is there a particular scene that strikes you as emblematic of his courage? The story of he and his armor bearer going and attacking, like, a whole troop of... Philistines, yeah. Like 20 of them or something. Yep. So he's saying, if God is with us, he'll hand them over to us. Yes. Let's look at this for a second. It's chapter 14, so you can turn back a couple pages. This is probably my favorite, my favorite picture of, uh, of Jonathan. It's 1 Samuel 14... Uh, verse 4. We'll start there. So, Jonathan, they're always fighting the Philistines. This is constantly. This is, there's always an antagonism of the Philistines. And Jonathan decides he wants to go fight a bunch of them. You're right, Kelly. There's like 20 of them. And he's going to fight this battle. Watch this. This is my, I love this scene. 14.4. It says, on each side of the pass that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outposts was a cliff. One was called Bozes and the other Senna. One cliff stood to the north of Michmash and the other to the south of Geba. And Jonathan says to his young armor bearer, Come, let's go over to the outpast of those uncircumcised fellows. Which is funny. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And his armor bearer responds, Do all that you have in mind. Go ahead. I am with you, heart and soul. You know my favorite word in that passage is? not uncircumcised, okay. But do you know my favorite word in that passage is? It's this. Look at this. This is so great. Wait, what? Perhaps. Look at him in verse 6. Let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Like, maybe. He has no reason. God didn't say go do this. He has no idea. It's going to be him and his armor bearer versus 20 guys. And they're like, you know what? Shoot, man. Let's roll the dice. Let's see what happens. And that is a courageous place to be. He's like, I don't know. But God's on our side. They're constantly a thorn in our flesh. Let's go try to kill them all. And he's just like, let's see. And, they, and he comes up with this ridiculous kind of like um, uh, determination. He says, climb up the cliff. And we, when they see our heads, if they're like, hey, come on over here. Then we'll be like, that's it. The Lord has delivered them into our hands. And we'll go. But if instead they say stay there, they're like, well, we're going to shimmy down the cliff again and be fine. They poke their heads over the cliff, and sure enough, they're like, hey, you, get over here. And they're like, oh, let's dance. And they go in and they slay them all, right? And he's just a courageous guy. He is not, he's living in denial about his father. He is not a weak man. He's not a sissy. He's, this dude is all out there. Kelly and then Catherine. Um, it's just as like David and Goliath. Mm-hmm. There's so much similarity. Well, no, it's a prequel. Oh, you're right. You're right. The prequel. You're right. This is Jonathan's. Yes, that's exactly right. Two on twenty. That's a good point. And no wonder you guys have such a kindred spirit. Yes, yes. These guys are both just—they're just awesome. Okay, Catherine. Oh, one of the qualities of Jonathan that I see is that he's—he's loyal. Oh my gosh. Faithful. And he must be really respected 
for that armor bearer to say, I'm with you, heart and soul. That's right. Well, that says something about David. <coughs> It does. And I love that you capture that, Catherine, because what, what the armor bearer is to Jonathan, that he is with him heart and soul, that is what Jonathan himself is to David, right? And you know, this is how this works in life. So often, like, what we, we, are, we are better able to offer to someone else what we have received from another, right? Jonathan knows the virtue and the value of having a loyal friend who is willing to climb a cliff and pick a fight with 20 armed men, Right? And and so and Jonathan is that for his best friend David, right? These guys are these guys are studs. Okay, so anyway, they go down to go back to go back to chapter twenty, First Samuel twenty, verse eleven. And so they decide they're going to follow the plan. They're going to go out to it, and then Jonathan is going to make two oaths to David. Okay, he's going to like lock. He's going to sign this with them. Listen, listen to the two oaths. In verse eleven, come, Jonathan said, let's go out to the field. So they went there together, and then Jonathan said to David, by the Lord. The God of Israel, I will surely sound out my father by this time the day after tomorrow. And if he is favorably disposed towards you, will I not send you word and let you know? But if my father is inclined to harm you, may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if I do not let you know and send you away safely. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. What are the two oaths, you guys? Jonathan is locking himself in. Two promises. Sound out soft. Okay, I'm going to go find out. Number one, I promise you, I will sit down at the table with my dad. We're going to see how this plays out. I'm going to sound him out. And number two, <coughs> what's that? And I'll let you know, right? So he's like, he's like I'm in. I'm going to do this. And he's making, and it's interesting, you might be like, I don't know how often you say to somebody, by the Lord, the God of Israel, I will surely do the following, but probably not very frequently, right? But this is literally life and death for David. And so John, and, and it could be, it could be, and in fact, it will be, life and death for Jonathan too, right, Ann? I mean, you know where their story is about to go. So Jonathan is stepping into a place of danger in order to help his friend who is already in danger, okay? And so he's making a promise. So far, so good? You catching the story? Okay, and then, this is, this is, this is going to be important later, but we'll notice it now. Verse 14, Jonathan responds. Jonathan makes this double promise, but then he also says to, to David, but, verse 14, show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Okay, just put an asterisk there. We're going to come back to this pa passage, okay? There's something meaningful that's going to happen here. It's going to, it's going to, there's a future event that's going to be built on this. In fact, I'm, I'm, do you know what it is? Like, Kelly, you don't get to play because I know you know. But what, what is this setting up, you guys? Do you know, Suzanne? David taking in Mephibosheth. Yes, okay. So is, if I say the name Mephibosheth, is this at all meaningful to you? Who knows his name? Okay. Here's the, here's the essence of the story. What's going to happen down the road is Saul is going to be destroyed. Saul's, Saul's going to lose the kingdom. David's going to come into the kingdom. He's going to become king. And as he sits in his royal palace ruling over all things, he's going to remember this paragraph, this thing right here. And he's going to remember, you know what? I made a promise to show kindness to Jonathan's family. 
Because Jonathan's not just saying, look at it. He doesn't just say, show me unfailing kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed. But he also says, and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies. Okay? And so, Kelly, what, what's the essence of the Mephibosheth story from that point on? Can you do it nice and loud? Yeah, when, when David comes into his throne, uh, they clean house. Well, his people, his followers clean house. Basically, Saul's line is killed. All of Saul's line is killed. And in that course, the nursemaid who takes care of the little boy Mephibosheth hears news and she runs away. And in doing so, she falls and he breaks his legs and he's maimed. He becomes a lame beggar, basically. He goes into hiding. And then, yeah, David one day is like, is there anyone, anyone at all? And there is no one except for Mephibosheth. And then he brings Mephibosheth into his courts and adopts him as his own, basically. That's right. And so we will, we'll, we will look at that story in, in more detail in a long time. But it's this beautiful picture of the king condescending to someone who could not provide for himself, is in a place of danger. But because he made a promise and because he loves Jonathan... He's kind to Jonathan's son. But this moment here, when, when it all happens and everybody's like, what are you doing? What are you doing taking on the grandson of the king who's tried to kill you? Why would you? Because Mephibosheth would have a claim to the throne. He's the descendant of Saul. You ought to just kill him and eradicate the threat. And instead he elevates him and he feeds him at his table. All of that is set up here in this, in this moment. Okay, so more on that in a couple months. This just makes me think of um, David when his own son was trying to kill him and came against him. And David would never, ever leave That's right. And defend him. David has a very strange kind of split because there are, he has made decisions. He is not going to lay a hand on Jonathan's children. He's not going to lay a hand on Saul. He's not going to lay a hand on his own, on Absalom, this whole Amnon disaster that goes down. So there are things that he just will not do no matter what it costs him. But then there's other times when he's really bloodthirsty. It's a, it's a, weird, it's a weird split. We'll try to explore that as we go. Yeah, Judy? I think it's interesting that Jonathan went from saying, um, I would know if you're going, you know, if my, husband, my father is going to kill you. Um, and, and then he then he turns into saying, "I know that you're going to be the king. You're going to eradicate my husband. You're going to husband. Um, anyway, my father." Yeah. And and so he he obviously and still his character is that if anybody should kill David, it's it's Jonathan. He's going to lose his ground. He knows it's going to happen, and yet he maintains his friendship, but at the same time, denial that his father's okay. It is very strange, and in fact. It's, if it seems strange to you that, so do you, in case you didn't hear what Judy's saying, Jonathan has the most to lose by David's ascendance to the throne. Because if David doesn't become king, who's going to become king? It's going to be Jonathan, all right? And, and Judy thinks it's strange. Saul thought it was really strange, right? We're going to see that in a second. Saul's going to appeal to him. He's like, what is the matter with you? Don't you understand that I'm trying to protect your throne from this guy that's going to take everything from our family? It's so, yes, it is, it's very odd. John, Jonathan, this is why when he is with him, heart and soul, he really is, even at the cost of his own throne. It's a big deal. Was there another hand, a couple of hands? Yeah, John. Yeah, one thing about the uh, apparent split between David's bloodthirstiness and his <coughs> killing certain people, he wouldn't lay a hand on Saul because Saul was the Lord's. That's right. That's the phrase over and over. He's the Lord's anointed, so he's hands off. His hands were off the business yet because he was to John. That's right. 
And even though he appears to have been a crummy father, uh, he still loved his son Absalom. He does. And that whole thing, that's a very complicated story. The Absalom, Amnon, Tamar story we'll unpack. No, uh, his son wanted to kill That's right. Absolutely. Okay, so let's keep going. So back to 1 Samuel chapter 20. Look at verse 16. So Jonathan makes a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord call David's enemies to account. And Jonathan had David reaffirm his oath out of love for him because he loved him as he loved himself. And then they enact the plan. Okay? Now it's like, it's like go time, let's do it. So Jonathan tells David, uh, Tomorrow will be the festival. You will be missed because your seat will be empty. The day after tomorrow, toward evening, you go to the place where you hid when this trouble began and wait by the stone ezel, easel, and I will shoot three arrows to the side of it as though I were shooting at a target. Then I will send a boy and say, go find the arrows. And if I say to him, look, the arrows are on this side of you, bring them here, then come, because as surely as the Lord lives, you're safe. There is no danger. But if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. And about the matter you and I discussed, name, what is that matter that you and I discussed? His oath. His oath to him to do what? To first of all, find out whether Saul is mad and then next Okay, yes. Okay, so that's, 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 that's the promise that Jonathan makes to David. What is the promise that Jonathan, what is the request that Jonathan asks of David? Protect, protect me and protect my family, right? And when he says, the Lord is a witness between you and me forever, that's the, that's the ongoing, enduring promise. It's like, hey, listen, if, you, if, we, if I never see you again and you're off and then the things happen and I lose the kingdom and you become king, remember what you said. Again, this is all setting up the Mephibosheth event, okay? Now, what's the point of this weird communication method? Launching arrows and telling the kid, hey, they're further away, they're this way. What's that about? Plausible deniability. Uh, He's not actually talking to David. Okay, great. That's right. It's a, it's a stealth way to communicate. Was there something else over here? Stealth communication, right? So I've got to figure out a way to get a message to you. So you're going to be out hiding behind that rock, and I'm going to be here, and I can't be like, hey, David, my dad's trying to kill you. Leave. That would be bad, right? So we've got to have some stealth way that I can yell really loud. And so this is what they come up with, okay? And the expectation is, if it's bad news, we're probably never going to talk again. I'm going to say the arrows are far away, and that's it. But it's, it's crucial, especially if that's the message. If the errors are far away, I, I can't come and see you because your life is forfeit and so may be mine. All right? You got the whole setup? Jennifer? It's kind of interesting. Uh, David starts the conversation, but then Jonathan plans. That's right. That's right. That's what I'm saying. David kind of recedes away, and you don't see David anymore. And Jonathan takes, comes to the fore, and he's really running this whole scene. Exactly right. Okay. Yes. I mean, Jonathan's clearly a soldier. It may be that he was not actually at court when some of these instances of Saul's aggression. Yeah, it's possible he was not a direct witness to those things. Although, like I said, I've got to think that he's heard about them. But Surely, but not having seen them, it may take on an error. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's a little bit different when you see it live. Um, okay, something else that Jonathan says in verse 22. There's a really important bit of theology embedded in verse 22 that we should at least just kind of mention. What is, what's, what's in 22? The Lord's sake. Yes. Interesting, right? It says, verse 22 says, I've already lost it. It says, um, if I say to the boy, look, the arrows are beyond you, then you must go because 
the Lord has sent you away. Right? I might have said that because my dad's going to kill you. Right? But Jonathan is understanding that there is a sovereign God over this whole thing. Jonathan does not question for one second that David is going to come to his throne. He just doesn't know the means by which God will bring it about. And perhaps the means by which David's going to ascend to the throne is going to involve him needing to flee. And God does stuff all the time, all the time, to accomplish his purposes by moving people around the chessboard. Okay, in fact, so let's just pause really quick. Where else, prior to this point in the, in the canon, where else has God moved people around under duress to accomplish his purposes? Robin? Joseph, how so? That's right. Well, you meant for evil, God meant for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many people. So Jonathan gets thrown into a pit, left for dead, accused of rape, imprisoned, so that he could arise as prime minister over Egypt and save the nation of Israel. What a strange way to do this. And, and by, by Joseph's own word, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, i.e. God meant this. This was part of the plan, right? You never would have seen it in the midst of it, but God had a purpose that he was working out. Where else do you see that? Jonah. Okay, Esther. Is that what you guys are saying? What's the, what's the Esther story, Anne? Uh, Esther went to be a concubine to the king, and when she was there, she was able to say all the Jewish that's right. And so Esther goes into this place. It cannot have been a great scene for her to be under the thumb of this king who loved nothing more than he loves himself, right? And yet, there's this great line that Mordecai says about her and says, who knows but such, you've come into such a place, for, you, you come into this place, place of authority for such a time as this. Again, there was a purpose. There was a meaning through this whole convoluted story. And again, she is in a position to rescue and save Israel, right? Because of this place that God has brought her into through a very strange, frankly, scandalous set of circumstances, okay? How about one or two more? Don? Jesus started off as a refugee. Okay, yes. So Jesus, is, he moves to Egypt, right? So Jesus, when Jesus, I mean, you, so many, I don't know where we start Jesus' story. Not only did he come to earth born in a manger, we make much of the lowliness of Jesus' birth, right? But then... He has to flee, also flees to Egypt, not unlike Israel. Fled to Egypt for safety before he gets brought back in. This is all part of the plan, to avoid Herod before he comes in and takes his own throne. You know, Catherine? I, I can't, th I, I think about Paul because on one side, he was such a passionate, determined, for the Lord, I'm going to kill them all. And then when God changed, completely transforms him. He is as passionate about saving. Proclamation of the gospel everywhere he goes. Yep, yep. And God brings, brings Saul through a very strange set of circumstances. Not only training him, he becomes, he's trained under Gamaliel, which would be like going to Harvard today. He's at the best, the finest education. And he goes through all the situations. He's, multiple times they try to kill him over and over and over again. Paul's life is at, at risk but all to shape him to be the one who will take the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, right? God brings us through weird, read, painful, awful, miserable, dreadful circumstances to accomplish a good end. He does it all the time. You didn't mention Israel. They go into Egypt, right? The whole thing because there's no food. Because when Joseph becomes king, say, like, well, we got food because he had the wisdom to store it up in silos. So they all come in. 
right, into this place. And God is using that to build up a people. Then he's going to call them out. I mean, all the time, God loves moving people around to accomplish his purposes. And Jonathan is able to say, this may be one of those. So just strap in. One more. Moses. In which part? The, the, the baby in the basket? Yeah, and just all of them coming into Pharaoh's um, yes. hole and then moving out. How terrible was it for Moses' mom to put her baby in a basket and be like, well, good luck, right? But he ends up getting picked up by the daughter of the Pharaoh, raised in the courts of the king, and becomes uniquely positioned to be the one that calls the people out of Israel, right? So, again, Jonathan says, the Lord, uh, hang on a second, says... Where does he say it? It's all lost. Then you must go because the Lord has sent you away. Jonathan has, Jonathan has some view that God is doing things even if the particulars in the middle of it don't make sense. Don't you wish you had that view? Because I don't like this part going on right now. But maybe the Lord is in it. All right, so verse 24. David goes out. He hides in the field. When the new moon festival came, the king sat down to eat. And he sat in this customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan, and Abner's there, da-da-da-da. But David's place was empty. So Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he is unclean. Okay, that's just an interesting thought. What, is that, what does that betray that Saul thinks about David? You spotted, you got it. What's that? You spotted, you got it. Okay, so you're talking about the whole, the clean laws? That there's something perhaps that would make him ceremonially unclean. Yes. But I think there's a, I think that reveals a perception that Jonathan, I mean, that, that Saul has about David. So there are rules that if you are, if you become ceremonially unclean for some reason, you can't go do this. And what is Saul presuming here? What's that? Yeah, why is it respect? Because if you're ceremonially, ceremonially unclean, you won't come and make. That's right. He assumes that David's got a reason to do this because he knows that God, that David obeys the Torah. He's going to follow this. So his first thing is like, well, you know, he's kind of religious that way, so he's probably just doing the right thing, right? Because David does the right thing. That's good. His first pass is like, all right, probably good. But the next day, dang it, David's place was still empty, and so Saul says to his son Jonathan, why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal yesterday or today? And this is where it happens. You ready? Poor Jonathan is about to get his, have his eyes opened real wide. So watch it out. Jonathan says, oh yeah, David has to go to Bethlehem. Let me go. There's a sacrifice. I found, if I find favor in your eyes, let me go see my brothers. That's why he hasn't come. And in verse 30, it's go time. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. <laughs> you S-O-P-R-W, right? <laughs> Don't I know that you have sided with son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me, for he must die. Okay, watch what he's doing. Saul is going to appeal to three motives that generally have an awful lot of power in our lives, right? He's going to apply. One second. It's going to be, it'll be a minute, John. Three things he's going to appeal to. He's going to appeal to shame, which is incredibly powerful, to guilt. If shame doesn't get the job done, guilt probably will. And to greed, which like sweeps up all, right? Shame, guilt, and greed. What's the, what's the shame um, admonition here? You chose David over. Yeah, how does, he, how does he phrase it? 
Don't you know that I have that you have cited? Don't I know that you have cited with the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of the mother of the Lord? Yes. Okay. So the first thing is this is to your shame. He's like shame on you. How dare you preference the son of Jesse over your own family? Right. It's like how could you do this? This is an act of okay. Second line. Where do you see guilt in this? Shame of your, your mom, how can you do this, right? Not only your own shame, but do you know what you're doing to your mother? I, 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 we've never even met his mother. His mother, she's been nowhere. She just gets brought into the table to be like, and now also your mom, right? And then what's the greed? You won't be king. You, won't be king. you, could, be, you could have it all, Jonathan, you idiot. What are you doing, right? So he's going to appeal to shame, to guilt, to greed, but it doesn't work. And Jonathan responds to him in verse 32. He says, why should he be put to death? What's Saul's answer to that? Well, what does Saul think is the reason that David should be put to death first? Why should he go down? He's taking the kingdom. That's a pretty good reason, right? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. And so here's the, here's, the big, here's the big moment for Jonathan. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. It's like, all right, he's coming along, right? Now, what would have happened, by the way, to Jonathan's kingdom if Saul had succeeded in jamming a spear into him? Saul had other sons. Yes, the kingdom would still pass but not to this one. But the very thing to which he's appealing, he's like, you know, if you don't want to be king, fine. And he, and he throws a spear into him, right? And now Jonathan gets it. Now, how do you think Jonathan's going to feel right now? <laughs> what do you think, what would be your primary emotion? <laughs> he is super mad. It could be fear, but in fact, it's anger. So Jonathan gets up from the table in verse 34 in fierce anger. And on that second day of the month, he did not eat because he was grieved at his father's Shameful treatment of David. By the way, how did, did you notice how Saul describes Jonathan? His son. What does he call him in that, in that passage? John? The son of the perverse rebellion. That's right. That's, that shows that Saul we commonly use today has deep ancient roots. Yes, that's right. It does have deep ancient roots. And he is not, he's not his son. It's like if you start... You know, you're like, you are Susan McQuaid's son. You're like, well, you're, you're my dad, you know, right? So he's, it's, it's a distancing move, right? He's like, he's like saying to Jonathan, it's like, you're not my son. You're her son. He's so mad. And, he's, and, he's, and you see this relationship tearing phenomena. And off they go. So Saul's distancing him. He's no longer his son. He's got these motives that he's appealing to. But Jonathan is loyal. He's, remember the armor bearer? What, what's the description of the armor bearer's association to Jonathan? Heart and soul. Jonathan is with him, with David, heart and soul, right? So take a look. In the morning, Jonathan went out to, went out to the field for his meeting with David, meeting across the acre, and he had a small boy with him. And he said to the boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. And as the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place where Jonathan's arrow had fallen, Jonathan called out after him, isn't the arrow beyond you? And then he shouted, hurry, go quickly, don't stop. Who is Jonathan talking to? David. He's talking to David. 
and this secret uh, communication has taken place. Jonathan doesn't need to go tell David to leave because he shouted across the field, go get the arrows. But there is a secret message tied to the arrow, right? And so there's no cause to meet. In fact, there's no safety to meet. And so they can't meet. Except you know what happens? <laughs> they meet. <laughs> the boy knew nothing of this. Only Jonathan and David knew. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to the boy and he said, go, carry them back to town, creating a space of privacy. And after the boy was gone, verse 41, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together, but David wept the most. <coughs> so much for the plan, right? So much for the stealth. Why do they throw caution to the wind here? Okay, well, why do they get rid of it? Why do they, why do they throw... They, because Saul, they're going to say that, but why do they, why does, why do they embrace? Because they love each other. Because they're grieved, they're sad, they're angry. They, only, they, may, they will, in fact, see each other one more time. Okay, there's going to be one more meeting, it's brief, later. But as far as they know, it's gone, baby, gone. And so there's this thing where the, there's the, the wisest thing to do is to be cautious. But so what about that, Right? So they go, and they, they wish to say goodbye. At which point the whole arrow thing is all turned into a worthlessness. But they can't help themselves because they love each other, and the loss is great. Kelly? I was just going to put out, I think it's really fascinating that, that he bowed three times to Jonathan because earlier when they were hatching the plan, when Jonathan asked David to make a covenant with him, Jonathan recognized, and when Jonathan said, go, the Lord be with you, like he's been with my father. Jonathan is as much as recognizing that the kingdom is coming to David and not him. But when David meets him to say goodbye, he bows three times to the man who should have been. That's right. And, and even there is a demonstration that David is not jockeying for this kingdom. He's not manipulating circumstances. He's not going to touch the anointed. He's bowing to Jonathan. Absolutely. And David, David honors him, but he should be king. And in a very real sense, the reason that David will be king is because Jonathan protects him. And so he, it, is a, it is a sign of great, um, great honor and loyalty to him, even though David's going to take the throne. Um, there, it's not exactly like, but, I'm, but because it's on my mind, I'm reading Robinson Crusoe right now. Which have you guys, Has anybody ever read Robinson Crusoe? I never had. It's the first English novel, which I didn't know that. First realistic fiction like in the English language in all of time. And Robinson has been on the island for 25 years alone, 25 years. And do you know how he comes to have his buddy Friday? I had no idea. Do you know where, you know how, where Friday comes from? This island, on odd occasions, every year or two, a bunch of cannibals show up to eat somebody. They bring, like a, they bring a captive, and then they cook him and eat him. And uh, Robinson is so tired of being alone that he decides the next time they bring somebody over here to eat him, I'm going to rescue him and make him a friend. It's been 25 years he's been alone. And so he's, he's literally waiting in the woods for the cannibals to come for over a year and a half, just waiting for the canoes to come. They come, and sure enough, there's this dude that's about to get eaten, and he intervenes and kills two cannibals and rescues Friday and makes, so now he has a friend. And Friday, his name is not, he names him Friday. I don't know what his name is first, but, but this guy who will become known as Friday, when he realizes that his life has been saved, he's rescued from getting eaten by these other cannibals, um, 
he comes to Robinson and he lays down on the ground before him and he picks up Robinson's foot and he places it on his own neck. So as to say, I am yours forever. And he becomes his servant, his slave. You gave your life to me and now I will serve you. And that's how Friday becomes Robinson Crusoe's friend. Isn't that interesting? I had no idea. So, yes. So David, when David comes and he bows before Jonathan, it is a, it is a statement of submission and loyalty and friendship, even though he's, he is soon to be king. But he's recognizing the place that Jonathan has in his life. Okay? Dang it. We're almost out of time. Okay. So far, so good? So that's the narrative. Now, here's what I want you here's what, We're always trying to ask this question. So what about that? What does this have to do with Jesus? Okay? So... Um, why do we, I mean, I am going to make the claim week after week that this whole story is pointing us to Christ. How? What are the peculiar things? And it's not, sometimes it's not real granular, some little thing like this, but it fits into this great big narrative arc. What is the Lord revealing through this story that gives us a clearer sight to the way that he would redeem us through his own son? What do you think? Now, there may be several things, perhaps that you thought of that I haven't. Anne? Oh, I just saw him reading that. Um, David, even though he was going to be king and he knew it, he'd been anointed, he was willing to be the servant to Jonathan. He bowed down to him and he didn't demand his kingship. Very good. Okay. So, this one who will rise to the highest point as king is himself lowly and submissive. That rings a bell, doesn't it? Very good. What else? What do you see here? one who would become as king. Yeah. This may be a stretch, so stop me. <laughs> but in a way, Jonathan takes on the wrath of his father. Yes. Jesus took his father's wrath. That's great. So that's a, that's a, that is a great point that we're going to see over and over again throughout the scriptures, including right here, that sometimes the act of loving someone requires being willing to step into danger on their behalf. Right? That's exactly what Jonathan does. He's going to come in. He's going to drink the father's, Saul, not, not the father, but drink his father's wrath in order to create a place of safety for, for David. And in that way, Jonathan himself is, is stepping into that Christ-like role. Even as sometimes David's going to step out of it, Jonathan here is stepping into it. It's a fantastic observation. The principles God is showing is what he's doing in all these things is, isn't this lovely? Isn't this desirable? Isn't this beautiful? And everything lovely and worthy and good, they're all going to come wrapped together into a bucket, into a package that is Christ. So all of these things that, you're, that makes your heart be like, man, I love it when that happens. I love it when someone is with us, heart and soul. I wonder when someone enters into danger to make someone safe. All of that is going to be borne out and when the Messiah comes. It's a great observation. Okay, one more. Anybody sitting on attack? I'll sure let you go. This one who will be king, Ray? Uh, Saul was trying to kill David, God's anointed, just as Herod was trying to kill Christ. And that's what I was about to say. So good job, Ray. Very good. I love that, right? So this one, before this Messiah, before the, Messiah, before the king can take his throne, his life will be chased again and again and again. When Jesus shows up, right, Herod's on him immediately. He's going to kill him because if, if we can kill him in the cradle, that'll stop the cross. Satan is going to come and he's going to tempt him. He's going to try to take him off his game. There's all these sorts of things that are going to happen. And so we should not be surprised that when the Messiah comes on his way to take his throne, there will be relentless opposition to him. And yet, he will prevail. 
Okay, these are some of the things you're starting to learn to notice in the text. Make sense? Okay, that's all we got. We'll do it again next week. Thanks for coming.